0: Six, I'm
1: John. I'm Paul. I'm George. And I play the drums. From Pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network, it's Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi Lapret And Chachi's <laughs> co-host, Beatles instructor at Suffolk University, David Golan.
2: Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to Get Back to the Beatles. My name is Chachi LaPrette, your host. We thank you for coming back and listening to our podcast. We have an exciting, exciting show today. First, let me introduce our famous co-host. He teaches the Beatles class at Suffolk University in Boston. We've been friends for 30, 40 years. He's been teaching this class for many, many years. Uh, Mr. David Gallant. Hello, Mr. Gallant. How are you?
1: Hello, Chachi. It's great to be here. And great to know that I think things are coming back to, to life, hopefully a little bit around the world, with any luck.
2: Well, I agree. I agree. And it's very exciting today because we have a gentleman who is the author of a fantastic book. I have it right here in my hands. I love it. I've been reading it. I've finished it. It's fantastic. It's, uh, it's called It's All Too Much, and it's the adventures of a teenage Beatles fan in the 60s and beyond, and he, he's unbelievable. The secondary title is true. It's the adventures of a teenage Beatles fan, and when you read this book, it's precisely what it is. I've often wondered, Professor, what it would be like to know the Beatles are living right in your same area. It was always over you know the other side uh, of the country always thought, well, we could always drive to New York and see John Lennon, but this gentleman, as a young boy, throughout his life, had many interactions with the Beatles, and it's such a lot of fun to read. We welcome our guest today, author David Stark. Hello, Mr. Stark. Hey, Chachi. Great to be with you guys. Yeah, and thank you for your comments. Yeah, glad you
0: enjoyed the book.
2: I really, really did. I found it to be a fantastic read, and, you know... You, my friend, have been in so many historic moments in your life that yeah. go down in rock and roll history. And I know the professor. You saw the book. You, I think, you've read it. And we have a lot of questions. And I will tell our, our listeners first of all, you can find the book at much.net. It's a preferred place to get the book because Mr. Stock will autograph it for you. And but it's also available at Amazon and wherever fine books are sold. So let's yeah. start first. Now, we're going to go back and forth between the professor and myself. We're going to hate with some questions. But my favorite actor, let's just get this off the table right away. <laughs> my favorite actor of all time and my favorite movie is a movie called Being There. Oh, and yes. I just love Peter Sellers. And you are a distant relative of the great Peter Sellers.
0: That's that's right. And his my mother, his mother were Mendoza's originally... Uh, Spanish Portuguese ancestry, and so I'm very proud of the fact that he was a distant cousin. But I, I did meet him only only once or twice, I think. And then his son, I was played in the band of his son years ago in the 70s. We had a very short-lived band, and Michael was a good friend who we we lost as well, unfortunately. Yeah, you but- know,
2: it, it's very sad because Peter died young, and his yep. son died at
0: the same age by the same problem is that true same of a heart attack at the same age and on the same day of the year that his father died it's as i mentioned in the book it's a it was a triple tragedy very sad in july of peter died 1980 and and, uh his son i forget a few years quite a few years later michael but uh, yeah so i have a great affiliation with peter sellers also my favorite Screen actor, I would say. And, of course, an incredible comedian. And I, I every time his, his films are shown on TV or programs, I have to watch it. Without doubt, he was the greatest.
2: He was. And, of course, he was a dear friend of the Beatles through the years. And there's yes. a legendary story of Ringo, you know, going out on his yacht as he left the Beatles. And, and that's how he came up with uh, Octopus's Garden. So there's a lot of... Oh, yeah overlays there with Peter Sellers and the Beatles. So we sure. thank you. We thank you for coming on the show today. I know you're over in London. So we will start the questioning. And I know David Gallant, you have some things you want to ask him. Would you like to start for us?
1: Yes. So David, we, you know, Chachi and I, through the years, we have interviewed and, and talked to a lot of authors, such as yourself, who sort of came to writing because of the Beatles or sharpened their craft. And I, what I always try to you know tell my students is that you know any and all of their of their writing is is good raw material for anything they may use it for and so i was you know always struck by the fact that you a lot of this came out of the fact that you had kept a diary and of course there's a there's a fantastic great british literary tradition right whether it's samuel Pepys or thomas boswell so right dr johnson had his boswell and now i've come to find out that the beatles had many boswells chronicling mm. <laughs> they their every step but how it made sense in their own lives. Now, so would you sort of credit your passion for the Beatles for your sense of yourself as a writer? It's something I I really have difficulty influencing my students that they think, well, I don't, I'm not a great writer. I I said, no, you all are writers. You know, it's a matter of of how you want to do it and you put your passion into it. Did you feel as though you you consider yourself a writer because of The Beatles, because of how you, you know, the material and how you transformed it into language?
0: Yeah, not particularly because I've always, I've been in the music business for many years. I've been editor of magazines. I was a writer on Billboard for a while back in the 80s. So, and I, I, you know, I started at school. I was editor of the school magazine. So I've always always dabbled in writing, But, but The Beatles were certainly... The influence and the spur to write my first book, without doubt, my story and their story, how they, how they intertwine, basically. So it was a labor of love, and I, it's something I felt I had to get out of my system after many years of friends asking me, David, what, you got all the stories, when are you going to do the book? And, you know, I finally thought, well, I'm going to do it. And then lockdown happened last year. And I thought I'm going to finish this damn thing, if I. Mm-hmm. and and that's what happened. It was thanks to lockdown I managed to get it finished, as I had some extra time. And I'm so pleased I did.
2: But David, do you think if you if there were no Beatles, you might have be? You know, did your parents want you to be a doctor or a dentist? If there were no Beatles, would you have not <laughs> gone into the music business? Would you have not have
0: written? Well, my my parents were very easygoing. They kind of split up, as I mentioned in the book, just at the time I was leaving school. It did cause some problems. That they never, you know, they never interfered with my career choice. And initially, I thought I was going to go into um, graphic art. I was reasonable at art at, at school, but that was not to be. And then I just I quit school and then saw an advert for a job, which was working for Premier Drums, the leading percussion brand in the UK. And I worked for them and got to, you know, in the promotions office at the young age of 18. And I had to go and meet people like Keith Moon and other legendary rock drummers. For a young kid who was a drummer as well, I was in heaven for a short while. (laughs) Yeah, so that's how it all started.
2: (laughs) Well, listen, there's so many stories in your book. It's called It's All Too Much. We're going to touch on some of them, certainly not all of them. But it's, you know, first of all, I, I'm always astounded at the impact of the JFK assassination from people all over the world. I mean, it certainly, okay. I distinctly remember it when I was a kid. I'm a first-generation Beatles fan. Yep. And I, and a lot of people say it opened the doors for the Beatles in America, but in your book, you talk about how it had such an impact over there in London.
0: Absolutely. You know, it still gives me shivers right now to think about it because I remember it precisely when we were watching TV November 22nd, 63, and the famous music programme Ready, Steady, Go had been on TV that evening. I was, I'd was i watched that like about 6, 6.30pm, and then there was a quiz show following that, and my uncle rushed in. He lived a few streets away just to tell us the news, which I guess we they must have interrupted the TV, but I was you know I, w- I was really upset about it went up to my room to cry i remember that i mean it had a big effect on me at the time and then you know still for years i was always fascinated with with the assassination and conspiracy theories but just you know just as a huge fan of kennedy which i still am and you know i've always i've always read about it watched lots of programs like you and everybody and it's you know it's the one unsolved mystery isn't it which we hope might get resolved in our lifetimes but who knows, who uh, knows?
1: M- M- mr Stark, you're 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 talking to folks here of course we're here in in massachusetts in the boston area and we're obviously within the whole ether of the kennedy mythology i'd like to talk a little bit about that transition one thing that we spend quite a bit of time in the early part of the semester is for my students to understand the, the English, the British, the European context of the Beatles coming to prominence. And okay. that it, it all didn't start with Ed Sullivan, obviously. And you do a, an incredible job. And it's a beautifully written written book and statement of really giving a little sociocultural look at post-war England. And, yes. and when you look at it that way, You know, kids growing up with with rationing and and a scarred country, goodness knows, especially up in the north with the bombing and everything like that, and in London, that the Beatles provided something that that new huge populace of teenagers was really looking for and really hungry for. Now, as a music journalist, what might you say to why that took hold also in America. I think it might have been Ringo might have been quoted as saying, what do they want with us? They've got everything anyway. And but John had said all if we just had a chance to grab them, we we'd really take them over. But mm. obviously kids in the states did did not grow up in the same way as 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 the same kids their same age in England. Why do you think the Beatles still took hold? What was what were they providing that we were missing, which could have been the same or different from what British kids were missing?
0: I think what it was right from the Ed Sullivan show was like the, the four guys, young guys, funny, all good looking with, with that hair. They were like, yeah, they were the four headed monster, of course. Mm. And I was just that collective thing, which, you know, which wasn't, it was very, very British. Okay. So other bands in the States had longish hair, but, when the Beatles came, of course, it was brand new, really, and I think it was just—it was just a mixture of the hair, the personalities, the songs, the—the the timing. It, it just all merged into one, and I think that's what caught the imagination. They were fantastic, and just—you know—everybody seems to remember watching that show, February, what seventh, in uh, '64 and it was just incredible
1: um, and, and you you as a kid probably felt maybe like some of your friends or other people who were passionate that they would somehow break through where a cliff richard couldn't or any other exports couldn't
0: yeah absolutely well of course and i had the music to do it of course the breakthrough song was I Wanna Hold Your Hand. Incredible record. Absolutely outstanding song. And, and they had all great songs at that time. You people kids today can't imagine the effect that those songs had on everybody they were so new so different and the energy and uh, the harmonies and the melody everything was fantastic so it's no big surprise that they did take off in such a big way after that because they were just just so great really and you listen to it now it still sounds great
2: (laughs) it still sounds great and everyone's getting ready for the get back movie and you know i know we're looking at each other here but listeners can only hear the audio but I just got the new George Harrison All Things Must Pass box set behind me. Any any thoughts on Get Back and the All Things Must Pass set that came out? And it is amazing how they're still viable and relevant to this day. And I think it will go
0: on for many, many, many years to come. Oh yeah, well, sure. I'm looking forward to the Get Back box set and and the TV documentary series, without doubt. And we were expecting that originally it was going to be a cinema film, but now it's not, and you know it's going to be. Well, there's four, five, six CD set. Who knows what's going to be in there? Very exciting, of course. And the Harrison set I haven't heard yet. Yeah, it's on the list, and there's obviously there was you know a major hype. And Olivia and Danny was at, were at Abbey Road last week for a, for a launch, which I missed. It's only a, a mile or so from where I am <laughs> right now. But yeah, and they. Uh, give George his credit. It was a fantastic album. I'm not sure I've got the time to listen to 70 tracks, which I believe it has. But <laughs> <laughs> I, I love the original album. You know, and you and know, the,
2: and, and Professor, you know, I bring up "Get Back," and the reason why I do that is because David Stock, you went to the world premiere, or you were invited
0: to a screening yeah. of, of "Let It Be" back in 1970. I was invited as a schoolboy to the world premiere at the London Pavilion Cinema. And my story in the book is that I really should have been at the rooftop concert that day because I'd won tickets to go to be in the audience for a Beatles concert TV show they were planning. Wherever it was going to be, I was one of the lucky winners. Through the Beatles magazine to to attend, and of course they about this is interesting. They'd actually booked the Roundhouse venue here, also down the road from me. They 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 penciled it in for a few days, and that could have been where it was going to take place. But or or they thought about going to an amphitheater in Tunisia, or all these crazy ideas. None of which happened, and instead they just ended up playing on the roof of the Apple Building on January the 30th, 1969. When I was at school, they never told me about it. I was so mad when I got home and saw the news. Beatles play a concert on the roof of their offices. And of course, I'm thinking, why the hell didn't they tell me? But anyway. <laughs> that is a little
1: bit, that little it, it, it is a little bit shocking, only because at other key strategic moments in Mr. Stark's narrative, he had a knack of sort of, getting into places by design and by accident as well to be close by his his idols and and you know i almost thought at that point you know what he just would have known it was in the air that he should have been over on on you know savo row and, and he should have been there right and but you know i think missing out being on the roof is pretty much balanced out by every other moment he was able to get so close. And you also had, and I found this to be very interesting, you had also very selective co-conspirators in some of your your adventures or misadventures. And there was a striking line early on because I compare it to some other narratives that are a little bit similar, sometimes from uh, female authors who loved the Beatles in groups. It was a group thing for them. And you had mentioned early on while you were reading all of these sort of new trade magazines or music magazines or publications about the Beatles and about pop music in general. And then of course, later on, you you worked in that industry. You Mm. said you were reading them in isolation because you didn't have close friends around you could share it with. You didn't know any other Beatle fanatics. And I found it to be striking only because I assumed everybody was a fanatic and there would be one on every corner.
0: (laughs) No, but that's true. When I was a kid, I would read the Beatles Monthly Magazine and, and all the articles in the weekly pop papers. And, yeah, I had friends into music, but nobody was quite as, as obsessed <laughs> as I was at the time. Uh, I'm just thinking back now. Good friends, but, no, nobody had that level of adulation that I had for the Beatles and a lot of other stars, apart from my brother, who was, you know, kind of by default a fan as well, younger brother. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and it didn't it, you you don't think it was because this is sort of a you know a classic cliche it wasn't because you were a drummer people didn't stay away from you
0: because you were a drummer right <laughs> I hope well no I hope not what you mentioned about the female fans doing it in groups being fans in groups uh, that's interesting because somebody pointed out well I was really lucky in getting into all these events and gate crashing film premieres and stuff because yeah, you know, I was a young, reasonably good-looking guy in in London as a teenager, and I was on my own or with a friend. There was just one or two of us, rather than female fans. And of course, it was the females which uh, always had the problems through security and not not really, you know, and they and they get crazy. And I I try to be as cool as possible when I, for oh, instance, at the LS, you,
1: exactly you had some great subtle moments. So therefore. The women maybe had their safety in numbers, and that's how they expressed their fandom. Yeah. But the sly, subtle approach—you know, just that the happy accident that Dick James would have said, "Oh no, Clive couldn't make it." Yes, <laughs> and that was your badge of that was your key. That was your key to unlock the door. You know, that was you know that that happy accident then precedes. Oh, you know, Mick and Marianne are in New York. Go ahead, Mick, take the seats.
0: <laughs> it's yeah. unbelievable. And thanks to Keith Richards of the Stones, I was allowed to sit next to him, the premier of the Yellow Submarine, and I was sitting directly behind Paul with John on his right, and it was hard to keep my eyes off John Lennon whilst I'm watching the Yellow Submarine film. I mean, he's sitting right in front of me, and it was just incredible. And he had Yoko to his right. We we hardly knew who Yoko was at that point, so it was all a very interesting evening and occasion. And for me, I was... I was in the heart of what was to be the last major Beatlemania event in London, you know, with a crowd of sixty thousand. That never happened again after that night. So I, I, at least, I experienced the taste of being in the middle of Beatlemania right at the end of it. It was fantastic. And and David, you were so smart. You had the wherewithal
2: to dress in a suit going to Yellow Summer. I imagine your mom and dad going.
0: Where are you going all dressed up like this? I can't believe that I did that. I mean, I must have had something in the back of my mind thinking maybe I can get in the film, into the film with my pal. So I must have had that. But the way events unfolded on that day and afternoon and evening was way beyond anything I, I could have ever predicted. It was incredible.
2: Yeah, I mean, maybe any other teenager would have just had their sneakers and jeans, and then yeah. and, and, and they'd be thrown out, but they're saying, well, look at this guy, this kid, he's dressed up, maybe he's connected oh, yeah. here. It was my
0: Lord John of Carnaby Street suit, a turquoise <laughs> shirt, a kipper tie, I looked the part. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Go ahead,
2: Professor.
1: Well, no, I just I, I did find some of those uh, the adventures of of poking in to be fantastic, and also the the recounting of your trips to the Saville Theatre and and the other premieres like Help and, and 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 everything
0: like that. I wasn't there. The Magic Christian was the other big one yes. with Peter Sellers and Rengo. Yeah,
1: right. No, I I was. I guess I was referring to that the time when you you talked about you talked about Help and and how it struck you and oh, that you yeah. sensed even. As that was leading into rubber soul, you sensed like a lot of other fans did that that the winds of change were 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 blowing. And I I I, I like your commentary because I always talk to students about what I think maybe is the best Beatles B side. When you talk about uh, briefly about the song Rain, how that really is kind of a hinge between oh, yes. even the, the, the pop folk Beatle world giving us a glimpse even to to Revolver. That that is, I I could do three weeks just on that song, what leads up to it, what comes out of it. And I'm I'm assuming it might be one of your favorites because perhaps of Ringo's virtuosic drumming.
0: Absolutely brilliant. Yeah, it's one of his best tracks. And yeah, I just love that song and the production and... John's vocal, everything about it. And it was just a B-side, but it was superb, absolutely superb. And it really, it was a glimpse into the future, paving the way along with Tomorrow Never Knows and more psychedelic stuff. There's the direction of music that was going to go into in a very short period of time.
2: Well, let's talk about some of those moments in history that you were there to see, feel, experience and hear and your parents had a lot to do with it. God bless your parents, because my my parents were Italian, and they had nothing. They want nothing to do with any of this uh, rock and roll stuff. But you, your parents took you to the Beatles Christmas show. I can't imagine what yeah. that was like. Can you describe that for us?
0: Well, that was great. That was in January '65. After the it was the the second Beatles Christmas show at Hammersmith Odeon, and it was. There, the four of us, mom and dad, my, my brother and I, and like, wow, we're going to see the Beatles. So uh, that was the one and only time I ever saw them as a group playing live. And on that day, I wrote, and I've still got my diary for 1964, where in just I've written in pencil and huge letters, Beatles at Hammersmith Odeon. And that's all I wrote. But it was just amazing to be there. I have to say that my brother is younger but has a better memory of it than I do. You know, I remember seeing them, but he just remembers what they were doing with us on stage with, with the comedy sketches and playing around with the microphones and stuff. And, you know, I just have vague memories of it, but just, you know, I know I was there. Plus, we still have the programme to prove it, the brochure. And, uh, yeah, just to have seen them once, yeah, was enough. I I wish I'd seen them a a few more times, and I I, I could have had the opportunity, uh, because they did uh, play a few London shows after that, but it wasn't to be. So I'm really glad I was there, and it was uh, a night to remember, for sure. Wow. That's fantastic,
2: and thanks to your parents for doing that. That's really amazing because we all we hear is you know, we hear these stories about it. And of course, you're in the fan club and you get the flexi
0: discs at Christmas time. I mean, how every year, all those flexi discs. I still kept them all, and like I'm still amazed they they've never been really released officially on one album. You know, we've had the bootleg for years, but. Wow, there's so, such a wealth of material on, on, on there, musically. And the uh, comedy sketch is just brilliant. You're going to show it to me now. Yeah. No, oh, what go. I'm going to
2: show you right now, though, David, is this was given to me many years ago. It's a oh. Christmas collection. I don't even know if it's real, but it has the fan club oh, yeah. on the back. It's numbered, number 700 out of 1,000. Wow. and it's actually They're actually vinyl 45s.
0: Oh, I've never seen that one. And, Fantastic. and it comes...
2: Comes with the text of each year in here. Wow, that's great. That's I've got pretty to get amazing. That. You know <laughs> what? I,
1: I, I, it's only a matter of time, gentlemen. Before there's an official packaging or repackaging of that, but the the market demands it <laughs> in in certain ways, and they they are there just like rain. I think there's a there's a hinge and a pivot point. I would say like the '66 Christmas message starts to get a little bit more avant-garde. And then yes. after the ones after that, you know, they're doing them in isolation and then yeah. different parts are recorded at different times. But they are fantastic. And it really does accord with David some of your reminiscences of the magical mystery tour film and how that kind of links with the 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 python element, you know, both the before and after. And Very those much. those those the Christmas records are as you know the goons meet psychedelia, <laughs> sort of like the yeah. last couple of them, and I think that they will make it make it out there soon. Uh, I did like the 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 recounting of of attending the Christmas show, and it's interesting because in '65, at that point, you know Brian was was still in some ways wanting the Beatles to maximize what he thought was the standard show business career and moments because, you know, the Christmas review obviously has a long route in British entertainment and coming out of vaudeville even. And so there were many other acts there where the Beatles could have commanded that all by themselves, but there were the expectations for them to pantomime and do funny sketches and everything. And so my students love when I can show them the clip of, of the around the Beatles where they do the Shakespeare sketch, you know, it's just, it's just fantastic that they could always be serious about their music and poke fun at themselves simultaneously and that's quite a talent
0: really when you think about it that's true very much so and uh, you know we just that was an incredible program when it came out it was it was different it was it was uh, that was produced by jack good i think and it was it was ahead of its time but just having the beatles doing that stuff on programs it was you know rather than just as well as playing their stuff, just doing the sketches, the Shakespeare. It, it was great. It was now the great. night
1: the night you went, you had the Yardbirds with Clapton. Is that correct?
0: Well, that's right. So I didn't even know who Eric Clapton was when I was mm. you know, a kid at that age. But, yeah, see, I saw the Yardbirds with Eric Clapton. <laughs> I'm quite <laughs> proud of that. Yeah.
1: Third <laughs> billing, but, yeah.
0: <laughs> and, and others not- on the bill, Freddie and the Dreamers. Elkie Brooks, who, uh, you know, she was, she was a great, still a great singer. So, uh, and a few others. Sounds Incorporated, I can hardly remember them, but they're they're all in the program, obviously. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so, but you're right. The the showbiz vaudeville element was still, and it was, and and that continued for many years in the UK, especially summer shows around the whole British coast. You know, all the holiday spots. To this day, they still have summer shows, which are essentially the same variety and vaudeville type of shows. So uh, that, that hasn't changed because people go on holiday and they want to see a, a variety of different entertainers. So that's, that's still a very British thing. It still goes on.
1: Yeah, I mean, we always remember the the great story of of the the, the Beatles snatching uh, Ringo from the holiday camp tour that he was playing, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, but I, I tell my students, you know, at that time he's leaving a full time paying gig and joining a group of guys pretty much into the unknown because the last time he spent much time with them, they were all drunk playing three a.m. in Hamburg. So, you know, that that is uh, kind of interesting for my students to learn those pieces of, of British culture, the holiday camp circuit. It's kind of hard to find analogies when I'm explaining yeah. it to them. I, I sort of explain, well, if you've seen Dirty Dancing, the summer, the camp in the Catskills had a house band. Think of Ringo playing in the house band yeah. <laughs> in the Catskills. <laughs>
0: That's, it. That's about the nearest analogy you could get, I think. So. <laughs> so, David, we're really
2: blessed to have you here because there's a story that we've always heard about and it it's historic, and you were there when Jimi Hendrix played Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. <laughs> the professor and I only hear about. I mean, generations have heard this story: how he blew Paul away by playing this song just several days after it was released. And yeah. and all four Beatles were there, and you were there as well. And yeah. I,
0: tell us about it. Actually, no, the four Beatles were at a previous show, where, which I was also at, in January 1967, when Jimi Hendrix experience supported The Who. And that's the night all the Beatles were there to see. Jimmy was the new guy in town. And we'd, I'd seen, uh, I was with my school pals, we'd seen him playing Hey Joe on Top of the Pops. And, you know, that was the, the first record. So uh, Jimmy was our man. I was a huge fan just from that first single but I was also a huge fan of The Who at the same time so there I am age what was I then when was it 67 so I was 14 watching Beatles watching The Who and Jimi Hendrix and my three favorite acts of all time all in the same place as me (laughs) yeah That was it. And then, okay. so then fast forward to June 67, and that's three days after Sergeant Pepper came out, where I was back at the Savile to see Jimmy headlining there. And, yeah, what is he open with Sergeant Pepper, the uh, title track, which blew our ears off. It was incredible. And a big surprise. Had no idea that was coming. And it took a a few seconds to realise what the hell it was. But yeah, you know, kudos to, to Jimmy for doing it. And yeah, a historic moment. And yeah, one, of, one of the saw Hendricks at the Saville Theatre, I think three times. Saw him six times in total. But yeah, he was an incredible performer. And yeah, I'm so glad I saw him as well.
1: Chachi, what's, what's deeply impactful uh, about the book for me is, you know, David has mentioned sort of with some tinge of regret, well, I only got to see them perform once, I only got to see them live once, but in yeah. fact, he got to see them in many other ways, right? He's watching Yellow Submarine while they're watching. He's watching Jimi Hendrix while they're watching Jimi Hendrix, yeah. and yeah. you know, get the damn bike on the bloody bike out of the way when he, John's <laughs> trying to roll into to, uh, Abbey Road Studios, right? And and those are seeing the Beatles in their in their non-performative context, right? That's that's like when 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 McCartney would reminisce, say, "Well, we were just there, and we were a band. We know that, right?" and we're just these four guys. But when we would put on the suits before going on stage, that's when we became Beatles, right? As if it's that other world beyond them. So oh, yeah. that's why those stories about being with the Beatles are fantastic. Even, you know, even compared to, I was in the audience watching them at the Christmas review. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs>
2: and, and, you know, David, you, you, you're you at the Yellow Submarine premiere and, George asks you, you know, what would you think of the movie? The next day, you're near Abbey Road, and Paul's walking down the street. He recognizes you. I mean, yeah. you have all these little interplays with, with them.
0: That's right. The book's full of, the, of my stories. And funny enough, I got a Facebook message today from a, a guy who really enjoyed the book. And he said, David, are there any stories you haven't put in the book? And I'm thinking, that's a good question. And I, I'm thinking, now I think I've put near everything in there that I could think of. I might have forgotten one or two. You know, I, I've, I've seen Paul and Wings and playing more than all the others, of course, over the years. But I might have forgotten a couple of Paul stories, but that's about it. Certainly all my John and George stories are in there, Ringo as well. But yeah, so uh, it was just great, you know, right through, you know, the 60s and 70s. You know i got lucky really and by by the 70s i was already in the in the music business but still a fan you know and so uh, hence you know kind of going to see george at the the albert hall when he was introducing Ravi shankar uh which was a special concert and my mum had my mother had been invited because she was working for a TV company, re- rental company, she rented the TV to Ravi, Shankar, Ravi Shankar's London flat, which was paid for by George. And it's all coincidence. And we, were, we went to the concert and had seats, uh, which turned out to be right in front of George's. And he, turned, he, he introduced Ravi on stage, the concert starts, and a few minutes later, we hear a bit of shuffling behind us it's George sitting right down beh- right down b- behind us. And like, so in the interval, we had a nice chat, and he and my mom got on great. I always remember that. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
1: <God. laughs> Mr. Stark, maybe as a young person, maybe I read too much... With some exceptions, one someone that Chachi and I have talked to before, and Chachi knows pretty well, Rob Sheffield of Rolling Stone. That maybe I read too much Lester Bangs and others uh, growing up. Where if you're in the industry and you're you're a journalist of pop music and and getting into the industry where you have, is it sort of taught to you, or are you supposed to maintain a sense of detachment? Is it is it not so much improper, but is it difficult to be a journalist?
0: and to incorporate your fandom or have to put it on the side? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think, yeah, certainly over here, I think most music journalists historically were all desperate to be cool or seen as being cool and detached from the music about which they're writing. And, you know, they, in many respects, many of them were cool. And we, I, I certainly was, was impressed by some of those guys and, and girls Along the way, who were great, great writers, and like yeah, they were they were cool. Nick Kent of the Enemy, Charles Shaw Murray, all these people who I never knew at the time, but you know, I got to meet later a lot of them, and they're just regular fans like you and me, really. They don't want to admit it, but they're all <laughs> huge music fans, really. So, not any of them maybe as crazy about the Beatles as I was, but certainly mm-hmm. for other bands the stones and whoever. So, uh, yeah, that's a good question. And, and, you know, David,
2: I've had the great opportunity to, to meet Paul a handful of times, Ringo yep. a handful of times, yep. George, I interviewed him once over the phone, but there have been instances where I was in the same room with Paul and Ringo. And, yep. you know, these, we make these people so big in our minds through the years and, and then you meet them and they're just regular people.
0: And Absolutely. Like- you know, you said it. And every time I meet Paul, I'm still, you know, I'm almost not quite shaking, but there's Paul McCartney. And I, you know, I'm talking to him, having, having a cup of tea with him or something at Lipper in Liverpool. And he's, and he's just as normal as anybody else. And he's keen to t- to talk as well and like, fi- and find out you know what's going on with me and uh, it's just always great to be with, and you know, it's just incredible. I, I've been very lucky in that respect. But, you know, every year, because I give out the, 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 song, the songwriting prizes at Lipper, but for the last two years, there's been no graduation ceremony, so we hope it's going to come back next year. And, of course, he's there every year, and let's hope he's back next year like everybody else.
2: So you're on a first-name basis with him, and I'm sure when Paul sees it, hello, David, how are you? And that must make you feel like, oh, my
0: God. Well, what you know, I think I in the book, there's one little story where every year we, we gather at Lipper before the ceremony, and there's in the green room, it's called, and I walked in a few years ago, and I see Paul talking to George Martin in the room, just the two of them, and there was hardly anybody else there. So I thought, well, I'm not going to, you know, say anything. I'm just going to go to the coffee table. But as I walk past them, Paul just turns around and goes, all right, Dave? You know, <laughs> without me saying a word. It's crazy, <laughs> you know, right? I always remember that moment. Yeah. <laughs> which is, well, that's a perfectly normal thing to do. So that was nice. Good for and, you. and Ringo, the last time I saw him a few years ago, was uh, he did a press conference at the, at the Gibson Guitar Showroom here, which I was invited to. Not many people. And he was, it was in support of his, what was it, banning guns. And he designed this gun motif. Uh, yeah, which with was, the
2: wrapped up uh, gun. Yeah,
0: and... with, the, with the barrel was all wrapped up. And yeah. so I'm sitting there and as, as soon as he saw me, he goes, I know you. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Could you yeah. have ever imagined that back in 64 when you're just a kid and you're hearing them for
0: the first time and all these years later, you're friends. So, and, Impossible. Yeah. Impossible. Really, and and I have to say, I met George a few times, and I've got to say, George was actually probably the easiest one to speak to. He would speak to I think anybody about anything. He was such a friendly guy. People call call him the quiet one, but he was anything but. He, he you know, it was he was just great to speak to. And met him a few times, and he's going on about stuff, and I can't remember half of it. But I'm thinking why is George telling me all this? But obviously he had stuff to get off his chest. Yeah.
1: Uh, one uh, just uh, if some insight from you on this, it, it is, it, you talk about it quite a bit and Chachi and I have also had also interviewed some time ago and Chachi, I, I can't believe I'm going to forget the man's name, who was cut Paul's hair. Leslie. Leslie. Leslie Cavendish. Yes, Leslie Cavendish. And for Leslie Cavendish and yourself, one thing that was a very prominent in their narratives was a growing up Jewish post-war London. And, yeah. and that's, you know, an important sense of, of identity for you, obviously. And what was it then to feel as though a man like Brian Epstein, who probably was in some ways running counter to his family's expectations of what, how he would thrive in the family business, but certainly helped is started a, a different type of business empire. Was was that obviously a badge of honor, or a source of pride? Was he a hero amongst the community?
0: Oh, I think so, definitely. I think Brian, well, he, you know, he must have obviously achieved a certain status despite his parents' wishes for a career or otherwise. And yeah, he was. I would say I never met him myself, unfortunately, but certainly. In his short life, he achieved so much, and he he definitely had uh, great status within the British Jewish community without doubt and, and, and the wider community as a totally ethical, honest guy who who th- thanks to him, I'm pretty sure the Beatles would never have happened in the same way that that they did, and it might have been a completely different story. So his vision, Right. for them was paramount to the whole thing it really was it was that it's
1: been often written that he was absolutely the right person at the right time much as much sure. as much the same has been said about george martin the right person at the right time yeah. to handle them in, when they were doing it together and then when brian sort of seemingly hands them off to george martin because they're becoming a studio entity yeah. in some ways uh, i mean historically unfortunate that he could not have lived out his life True to his own identity because of the the nature of the times, you know.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Really, a, a
1: tortured soul
0: in that way. Yeah, and that's uh, a, a very sad ending. But somehow, you know, it's all part of the story. And, uh, and all these all these things happen, and like you can't you you could never have predicted what was going to happen. But over the years, Brian dying, John, George, all these tragic events are all part of the story. And, yeah. and and the story never gets any less interesting. In fact, quite the opposite. Now, if, when, when
2: Brian asked, you must have been shocked as a kid, saying, how could this have happened? He was so young. But uh, refresh my memory, were you there at the Jewish Youth Club event where Queenie yes. and Clive were there? Describe that, yeah. because... Uh, and set up the story so we can, you know, we can hear what happened because you were there, and I, it was very heartfelt of what you wrote about.
0: Yeah, and I remember it well. And it was just a few weeks after Brian died, where he had he was associated with the East Finchley Jewish Youth Club, a place I used to go to for discos mainly back in the day, and he but he'd been he'd been booked to appear and give a talk at the club. And I guess it was in September, October, 67. But, of course, he died at the end of August. But his mother, Queenie, and brother Clive, who I had met previously, were there in Brian's place. And I was there as a Beatle fan and to pay my respects. And I always remember it, that there was a crowd of us kids and a few adults, and Queenie was introduced. And she was just crying trying to speak, but she was it was hard to understand what she was saying. She was crying so much. And uh, yeah, that was a very sad event. But you know, I was there and I and I said hello to her and Clive afterwards. But of course, they were in quite a state. That was that was quite something. And just to be there that day, because I I missed out on Brian's memorial service, which took place around that time. At the, the the synagogue in Saint in Abbey Road, actually, and I, I mentioned in the book the, the the rabbi at the synagogue who conducted the service. I knew very well. His name was Doctor Rabbi Louis Jacobs, and his son David Jacobs is one of my best friends to this day. So, I was at school, and we had another friend, also called David. Everyone's called David in this story. Mm-hmm. And, and this David said, I'm going somewhere tonight, but I can't tell you about it. Very nice of him to say that. <laughs> so he'd been sworn to secrecy. And it was only the following night that I discovered that he was a guest of uh, the rabbi's son at Brian's memorial service, which all four Beatles attended. So, yeah, I would have liked to have been there. But anyway, just wasn't to be. But, and that was the one and only time all four Beatles Went to a synagogue, as far as I <laughs> Yeah. Wow. Well, a couple more
2: questions. I know we're approaching an hour. We don't want to take up too much of your time. But no you know our mutual friend, Plastic EP. Plastic and I had the chance yeah. to interview in two segments, two sessions with Michael Lindsay Hogg.
0: I have watched it. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. And, and I, Congratulations.
2: That was amazing. That's a lifelong dream to interview Michael because he rarely does interviews. But you went to the Rock and Roll Circus, the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus, of which Michael yep. was the director. And uh, you talk in your book about how they dressed you up in costumes. Everyone wore costumes as you went in. And so yeah. uh,
0: describe yeah. that. Yeah, well, there again, I got lucky by winning tickets to the show through the new Musical Express. And I think there was like 50 readers or something had free tickets. And so we get there and we're all asked to wear uh, these coloured ponchos and hats. So they wanted the the audience to all look like... uh, Munchkins really and uh, it was for c- continuity purposes as much as anything because they had to switch the audiences halfway through but yeah just to be at that show quite incredible where it was the Rolling Stones but also the Who and John Lennon with the, the Dirty Max Supergroup with Clapton, Keith Richards and Mitch Mitchell from the Hendrix Experience and yeah so that was unbelievable I was I was just 16 for that one and just being there and i think about i think i wrote in the book i can still smell it today the the studio because they had it was, they had horses so it was like bales of hay and farmyard smells well, <laughs> circus smells to be honest that's how i remember it and it was just it was great and it was very laid back and there was security was was pretty minimal in those days so you know, at one point I, I wrote in the book, I, I had to go to the toilet, the men's room, and had to walk all the way around the circus ring to get there. And then I see, as I'm approaching the, the room, I see a bunch of four guys having a chat, facing each other. And it's John Lennon, Mick Jagger, Pete Townsend, and Eric Clapton, the four of them. And I don't <laughs> think anyone else saw this grouping <laughs> apart from me. And I just wish I'd had a camera. <laughs> with me at that time that was that was just a moment and i should have i should have said something i didn't say a word but i just walked past and on reflection i should have said hello or something But anyway. well, when you did describe that and you in your book and you talk
2: about you had these smells and i'm thinking what they're smoking marijuana there but then no, you talked course. about it was barnyard stuff it and was. i was like yeah, <laughs> totally different yeah, than to what
0: was I was great. expecting. I loved it, you know, it was just, and because I was there right from the start and they're all doing the procession, the introductions, and they all had to retake them a number of times. So it was just a lot of fun. And funny enough, they just showed it again on TV here. I always like to watch it. It's, it's, it's an absolute amazing document of the era. And even though the Stones weren't happy with their performance, I think it was great. And of course, it was Brian La- Brian Jones's last show with him. Right, and that was the one the one and only time I ever saw him, and he was completely wasted. But <laughs> yeah, at least I got to see him once.
1: Chachi, that that makes me think of when uh, you know John Lennon's directions to George Martin when they're. Recording being for the benefit of Mr. Kite with the Calliope sounds, he says, I want you to feel like you're at the circus. He says I want with the sound of the music, I want to be able to smell the sawdust. That right, that was Lennon's command to George Martin. And now with the rock and roll circus, well, he's got his sawdust finally and and various other aromas, certainly like that, especially with hay and if there's any animal dropping. So yeah, yeah. quite a quite it sounds like quite a quite a festive atmosphere. That's
0: for sure. Oh, most definitely. But,
2: before we go, I want to talk about one other person, and I've, I enjoyed the book about his life, Alan Klein. Oh yeah, you know, yeah. And you know, a lot of people hate the guy. A lot of people like the guy. After reading the book about Alan Klein, I kind of felt sorry for him in a way, but I kind of liked him as well. You knew Alan's daughter. You traveled in a limousine to see the Beatles. I forget the location with was- Alan. And no, the Stones, song. not the Beatles. The oh, Stones. the Stones, right, right. I'm sorry, the Stones, right, right, right. Yeah,
0: I yeah. So. Actually, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Alan, yeah, I knew him because I was friends with his daughter, Robin, who's a great film film editor. And she and her, was her other half partner, Mick Gokenau's a good pal of mine, who's also an editor and a great musician and engineer. So I used to go over to New York a lot. And they come over here. And, and when the Rock and Roll Circus was, was re-released, eventually, 30 years later, in '96, I was, I was kind of a consultant on it because I was there and I was helping them to, to work out who was who on the, on the screen. And then I'd met, I met Alan Klein because he'd come over for the screenings as well. And so I met him a few times. And and in New York, and I must say, going to the APCO offices, the original one off on Times Square, unbelievable, the amount of gold records for every conce- conceivable artist that Alan Klein represented, back from Phil Spector and the Ronettes to the Beatles, the Stones, the Who. Sam Cooke, many, many more. Every wall was just wall-to-wall, gold and platinum discs. Most unbelievable office you could ever imagine. And then, yeah, I was... We went to see the Stones. At, where did we see them? Giant Stadium. When was this? Around about 97 or something, I forget. So I'm in the limo with Alan Klein and Robin and Mick, just the four of us, and I, yeah, but he's on the phone on his mobile talking business most of the time, and we're there and we're getting VIP treatment. You know, we, we get shuffled into the VIP seats at, at the stadium, and it was just like you know, no questions asked. It's Mr. Klein, virtually running the show, to be honest. So, and he he goes backstage to meet the band. Sadly, couldn't go with him, but but yeah, he was he was he was the most forceful personality. Obviously, an incredible shrewd businessman, not the most popular guy uh, on the block, but boy, did he know his stuff. And uh, really, he was he was a force to be reckoned with. And I always remember, you know, at that time, there was a big issue with The Verve having sampled an orchestral version of Andrew Lou Goldham's track the last time on his orchestral, album, which they used for their bittersweet symphony. Sympathy or symphony, and and I asked, and and, and they and Abco, well, let me get this right. Abco had claimed a hundred percent of the copyright, even though it was just a sample, and 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 Klein won. So I asked him. I said, you know, how did you feel about that? I'm in the limo asking him this. He said, well, all they had to do was, was ask, and they didn't ask, so that's mm-hmm. why he went to them. That was it. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah. Unbelievable. And of of course, you know, what did you think when he was sentenced to jail? And I mean, just, uh, and you know, it's pretty sad.
0: Well, that was before I knew him, but obviously he had a colourful career. That is for sure. And (laughs) I guess, have there been any documentaries about him? I'm not sure there should be. There really should should be. be.
2: Yes. There you go. Now we're on our next book and movie together. You, (laughs) all our Davids here. So uh, (laughs) Professor, before we say goodbye uh, to Mr. Stock, any other questions, any, anything you'd like to say before we say goodbye?
1: Well, you know, I, I found the, the Alan Klein story very, very interesting. I mean, it, historically, there, there's no way you could have a, a positive light shown on you if you were there to preside over the breakup of the world's greatest man. <laughs> yeah. And so whether he had a part in it or not, you're, you're, you're going to be painted with that broad brush and, you know, unjustly or justly the same with, with the Yoko's history with it, you know, history has its own way of, of writing itself sometimes mistakenly. But what we do have to correct those mistakes or to create greater understanding are books like Mr. Starks, which I, I think that it's, it's really a, a good read. It's a fantastic read. And I really do like these personal narratives that I can combine with snippets in class of when I may present them with a, with, a, with, a, with a text that might be a little bit more historically or by a journalist. David, I often use a, a Jonathan Gould's book, Can't Buy Me Love, you know, the Wall Street uh, Journal writer. And, okay. But to have also, I would say, the box populi, even though you've had a career as a journalist, the fact mm-hmm. that this was based in diary entries, I always find that to be fascinating. And I think it uh, mm-hmm. um, really gives students a different, a different insight into what someone of that age, contemporary, while this was going on, what they were thinking and feeling so it's a, it's a great it's a great uh, narrative for that so thank
0: you uh, thank you very much
1: I found it enjoyable not just as a reader but as someone who's, who teaches the material <laughs>
0: okay appreciate that
2: well, mr stock we want to thank you the book is called it's all too much you can find it at it's much.net where uh, david stock will be glad to autograph a book for you and it really is a fantastic read we just touched upon several stories but the yeah. whole way you put it together from meeting clive epstein on a beach throughout to to when paul mccartney and you were at lippa and it's just an amazing story what a life you have a career <laughs> in music you've had how is nigel everything good with your brother my brother's fine thank you for asking yeah you read He's about cool. you read a lot about it because he wasn't quite a beatles fan he was more into elvis before he was the,
0: a, being more younger yeah. Uh, he's also a Beatles fan, and uh, so he's great. And, um, and his daughter, Me, now, which I also mentioned in the book, his daughter is named Mimi because my father had a sister who died at a very early age in the 1920s or early 30s, and her name was Mimi. Amelia, actually, her real name was Amelia, but they called her Mimi. So had she lived, I would have had my own Aunt Mimi. So, that's yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's, a,
2: that's, I think that's a great way to end our podcast today. You've been listening to Get Back to the Beatles. We want to thank the Boston Podcast Network, David Yaz, for producing our podcast. If you want to have your own podcast, Mr. Yaz can help you at bostonpodcastnetwork.com. David Stock, a pleasure to see you again. Congratulations on your book. Professor Gallant, a uh, great podcast today. Thank you for once again participating. Thank,
1: Thank you, Chachi, for bringing these great folks on board.
2: Well, we love David Stock. The
1: book is Thank fantastic. you very much.
2: Really appreciate it. Okay, everybody. It. You can catch us again. Look at our shows the, on the Boston Podcast Network. Get back to the Beatles. Have a great day. See you next time.
0: And please say to me
1: You let me hold your hand I let me hold your Get back, JoJo Make sure to check for the latest episode of Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi Lepret at pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network.